Psalms chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. When Caiaphas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Caiaphas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And Father, we just pray that this morning as we look through these verses that you would uh, bless us, that you would be with us, and that uh, we can draw closer and near to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, in the book of Galatians, as we've been reading and hearing about over these past three weeks, this is now our fourth, Paul has been defending the gospel message, which he defines in Galatians chapter 1, verse 3, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself, gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of God our God and Father. And then his language in chapter one, is, as Louis reminded us as he opened up this series, it becomes a little bit more alarming. In Galatians chapter one, verse six, we read, I am astonished. Think of that, the words, think about these words, the, the power behind these words. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ Jesus and turning to a different gospel which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. And then in verse 8, he goes on to say, but even if we are an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. Wow. Okay, this is pretty strong language. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 5, last week, as Dave read through these verses, we read, we did not give into them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved. Again, very strong language regarding the truth of the gospel. And so when we come to verse 11 of our text this morning, we read, when Caiaphas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood 
condemned. Again, very strong language, and I'm sure you'd agree. So the question I have is, why did Paul write, I opposed Peter to his face? It says, because he stood condemned, which is interesting. It's a word which is the opposite for the word justification. We're going to get to that a little bit later. But here in our verses, we have the clash or a clash of two leading apostles. Peter was unquestionably a leading apostle. He spent many years next to Christ, living with Christ, listening to Christ, hearing his teachings, seeing his miracles. He was part of Jesus's inner circle. Remember that time when Peter had worked all night uh, fishing, but caught nothing. And in the morning, Jesus turns to Peter and he says, put out into the deeper part and, and let down your, your nets for a catch. And, oh, but master, we've worked all night. We haven't caught anything, but, but he does it. He's reluctant, but he does it. And it says that he caught such a huge number of fish that even their nets began to break. And, and the boats filled with water and it, they began to sink. And Peter falls down on his knees and he says, leave me, Lord, I, I'm a sinner. And Jesus very, very warmly says to him, from now on, you'll be catching people. And catching people he did. If you were to read through the first four chapters of the book of Acts, you will see that Peter preached to the people in three different sermons. So he had a very important voice. So here um, we have this opposition. We see that uh, Peter is now being opposed by Paul to his face. And, and that it, it blows my mind because last week, as Dave was reading through Galatians, the, the first 10 verses of Galatians chapter 2, this is the same Peter whom Paul and Barnabas visited privately in Jerusalem and, and asked them to confirm the gospel message, right? They wanted to make sure that the Jerusalem apostles were supportive of the message regarding what? A commitment to the Messiah without the inclusion of Judaism. A commitment to the Messiah without the inclusion of Judaism. And in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, James, Peter, John, those esteemed pillars of our faith, says they, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. What does that mean? We were acting, it was an act of solidarity. We've been hearing about that this morning, an act of solidarity. When they recognized the grace given to me, we read, they agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So Peter and the other apostles confirmed to Paul and Barnabas that salvation was dependent on faith alone in Christ. It was not about performance. It was not about ritual. Peter and the other apostles confirmed this to Paul. But now because of Peter's actions, Paul must confront Peter. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. This would take great courage on behalf of Paul to confront Peter in this matter. 
But the true gospel message, that's what we already read this morning, the true gospel message, church unity, they were at risk. How did Peter distort the truth of the gospel? Verse 12, for before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. According to the clean law, and I put that in quotations in the Old Testament, there were a series of rules and regulations that had to be followed in order to worship God, in order to be near to God, in order to draw close to God. But Gentiles did not prescribe to the laws. And they were viewed by the circumcision group as unclean, unable to worship God, unable to draw near to God, unable to... Many Jews believed in Christ. They believed in his death. They believed in his resurrection. But they said, well, you know what? You, you also need to be circumcised. You also need to be... It was about traditions, customs, ceremonies, dietary restrictions, dress restrictions, plus Jesus. They believed and practiced that salvation was about the Mosaic law plus Jesus. And so when Peter, when Peter withdraws from the Gentile believers, he was implicitly saying that salvation was not by faith in Christ alone. Hmm. So before the circumcision group arrived, why was Peter willing to eat with the Gentiles? In Matthew chapter 15, verse 3, Peter is with Jesus at that time. And the Pharisees ask Jesus the question. They ask him, why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. You see, the, the Pharisees believed that you were ceremonial, ceremonially unclean before God if you did not wash your hands or abstain from eating certain foods. And in that same chapter in Matthew 15, verse 11, Jesus says, listen, it's, it's what goes into someone's mouth that does not defile them, but it's what comes out of the mouth. That is what defiles them. So Jesus said, okay, Peter, okay, so Jesus says, it's not what goes into a man's mouth that makes him unclean, it's what comes out of his heart. So Peter heard and understood what Jesus meant was that man-made traditions were not an excuse to violate the commands of God. Jesus was exposing their hypocrisy. And that's another key word in our text. In Acts chapter 10, Paul had a vision of a large sheet being lowered from heaven containing all kinds of foods. And a voice said to him in verse 13, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And then in verse 15, we read, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. 
and after Peter meets with Cornelius, a Gentile centurion, and, and after he, he reflects and thinks about the vision and the voice, he says, Peter says in Acts 10, verse 34, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. I love that. He doesn't show favoritism, but he accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. And while he's speaking um, and preaching the gospel message in that same chapter in verse 44, it says, or we read, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. Imagine that, right? You're there and the Holy Spirit pours out, pours down. And it says the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. In Galatians chapter 2, Peter ate with Gentiles because he knew in his heart that God does not show favoritism and accepts men from every nation as witnessed by the gift of the Holy Spirit being poured out even on the Gentiles. He might have even remembered that Jesus ate with sinners, including himself. Maybe they even shared a meal. But the circumcision group wanted nothing to know about it. They would not eat with the Gentiles. They would not share the utensils. They didn't want to breathe the same air. And in our text this morning that we've read, you have this agape feast. It's, it's a love feast. It's, it's a banquet. Think of it as a banquet after church when we all come together for fellowship. This is before COVID. Looking forward to getting together in a couple of weeks again at RBC. And think of this agape feast, this love feast, also including the sharing of the Lord's communion, because that's how they did it back then. But the Jews were not willing to participate with the, with the Gentiles who were not Jewish enough. Think about the breaking of bread. Think about what it means to you. Think about how much you enjoy gathering around the Lord's table like we did this morning. And we share, we share some verses. We sing some hymns. We pray. We break the bread. We, we drink the wine with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Now imagine that you are a believer in Christ, living in the province of Quebec, living in Montreal, and you attend Rosemount Bible Church but that you can no longer participate in the Lord's Supper unless you like to eat poutine or you like to listen to Céline Zion or you worship the Montreal Canadians in a cult-like fashion. Imagine if you were not invited to participate in the, this love feast, the agape feast, the communion, the sharing and breaking of the bread, the drinking of the wine, not because you were disobeying God, but because you were not obeying man-made rules. This in no way is the promise that was made to Abraham, which remember was the promise to deal with the sin of Adam, that is the promise of forgiveness and new life, which is now available to all, all nations. Nowhere does it say to the exclusion of the Gentiles. And so what we have is the result of Peter's behavior is hypocrisy. There's division. There's lack of unity. There's a two-tier system of Christianity. 
Peter himself was no longer enjoying the love feast, the communion. And in a sense, he was making a mockery of Christ's death by suggesting it was pointless. Perhaps that's why we read in Galatians 2.21, Paul writes, I did not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So why did Peter act in this way? Well, it says in verse 12 that Peter was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Earlier in Peter's life, he denied Christ three times before the rooster crowed. It was because he feared for his life. This time, I believe Peter was afraid because he feared for his position of authority among this particular group. Maybe he was concerned about some negative reports um, when they returned to Jerusalem about him. Peter was not afraid when he preached in, when he preached in Jerusalem. He was not afraid when sent by the Holy Spirit to visit Cornelius. Um, but, but now he's afraid to be with this group who belonged to the, to be the, with the Gentiles when the circumcision group arrives. And, and in verse 13, we read, the, the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Twice we read here hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy because Peter knew that what the Jews taught and believed was untrue, yet he sided with them. And it, and it says even Barnabas was led astray. Now, now, we have to take a quick pause here, too. Barnabas, who heard Peter's message, of all people, Barnabas heard Peter's message in Acts chapter 4. And he was compelled to sell his property and leave the money at the apostles' feet. Barnabas was led astray. Barnabas, who in Acts chapter 9, after Saul, who's now Paul on the road to Damascus, had that encounter with Jesus. It was Barnabas who introduced him to the other disciples. Barnabas, the same Barnabas who is now led astray. Barnabas who in Acts 11, verses 25 and 26, recruited Paul and asked Paul to come and to help him teach the new followers of Christ in Antioch. This is the Barnabas who was led astray. Peter, what are you doing? Peter's behavior was altering the true message of the gospel message. And Paul calls him out on his behavior, calling him a hypocrite. Had Paul not opposed Peter, Antioch would probably not have been the great missionary church to send out Paul and Barnabas. Maybe instead they would have commissioned the circumcision group to go. Can you imagine what that would look like? Verse 14, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, in line, that's interesting, I'll get there in a second, I said to Caiaphas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Peter, you're not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. The literal translation is, Peter, 
you are not ortho-walking with the gospel. In the same way you go to the orthodontist and you have your teeth straightened, we need to be walking and living in a straight line which reflects the truth of the gospel. Peter, you're, you're a little off-center with your theology. You know, you, you need to realign a little bit how you're thinking. You need to realign a little bit how you're behaving. You got to realign a little bit how you're living. And you got to make sure that you are in, in line with the truth of the gospel. Verse 15. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Notice the word justified is mentioned three times in these two verses and once more in verse 17. The opposite of justified is condemnation. We saw that word in verse 11. As Paul said, I oppose him to his face, but he stood condemned. Yeah. In the court of law, you are, you are not condemned. You are justified, legally speaking. If you, are a, if you are condemned, you are guilty. If you are justified, you are not guilty. In, in God's eyes, a condemned sinner is declared not guilty. He is declared righteous. Warren Wiersbe, he's an author, he's a commenter. Uh, many of us have his Be Free series. Uh, he writes that justification is the act of God whereby he declares the believing sinner righteous in Jesus Christ. It's an act. It's not a process. It's, a, it's an act of God, and it's not a result of a person's character or works. Nothing that Stephen can do on his own, I, can, I can't achieve it, I won't earn it, justified by faith, not by works and faith, not by faith and works, but by faith in Christ Jesus alone. Now, let, let me share an illustration, because I, I thought that I liked it. So pretend I have a credit card. <laughs> pretend I have a credit card. And um, don't think about the balance. Rent. Pretend I have a credit card. And uh, instead of receiving credit or, or money on this card, pretend that I receive or you receive. Pretend that we receive. Let's do this. Click. We all have a credit card. We have a credit card. And on this credit card, I'm trying to credit card. What we do is we receive, we receive the righteousness of God's son. The righteousness of God's son on this credit card. So um, this particular credit card that we now receive, it has no limit. There's no limit of $500 or a thousand. It's limitless. Uh, it never runs out. Um, I am immediately approved for this credit card. It's not dependent on my credit score or, or my salary or if I have a job. They don't do a credit check to see if I've been bankrupt before, if, if I have other debt that's outstanding. There, there's no risk of me being denied. Um, I, I just need to receive this credit card with an empty hand 
of faith. It's a credit card of, of justification by faith and, and not by works. There's, there's no work, there's nothing that I can do that will add God's righteousness to my card. Impossible. Uh, when I sin, I confess, I swipe the card because it's already paid for with the blood of Christ. Justification by faith alone in Christ. Verse 17. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. Jewish religion dominated Jewish life. And unlike the Gentiles, the Jews had only one God. They had the Mosaic law. They had their ceremonies. They had their customs. In their eyes, to not be a Jew living under the law was to be a Gentile sinner. And what the false teachers were saying was that those who trusted in faith were not saved. And Paul's response in this verse and in this text, he's like, no, no, sorry, been there, done that. Remember in Galatians 1, chapter 13, he gives a little bit of an autobiography of himself. He said, you know, remember my way, my previous way of Judaism, how intensely I prosecuted, persecuted the church of, of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism be, beyond many of my own age and among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. But Paul had seen the light on the road to Damascus, and he knows, he knows that the law brings condemnation and death. And he's saying, why would I ever go back to that religious system? You know, I, I tried to be self-righteous. It didn't work. No, Christ died because I broke the law. He paid the penalty for my sins. I am justified because he was condemned. Remember that verse in Colossians 2, uh, Colossians 5.14, God made him, God made him who had no sin to be sin in us so that we might become the righteousness of God. You can, you can hear the credit card swiping. No, 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 absolutely not, Paul says. Christ isn't promoting sin, but to go back to a system of justifications by works of the law, guess what? That would be sinful. Verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Life is not defined by a relationship with the law. Life is not defined by a relationship with the law. It's defined by a relationship with Jesus Christ. Life is about a relationship with Jesus Christ, to be able to approach him, to be able to draw near to him, to be able to worship him. The law, it does not love me. 
the law, it does not give itself for me. It condemns me. Paul says, I died to the law's condemnation. But Jesus, Jesus loves me. Jesus gave himself for me. Jesus justifies me freely. I have been crucified with Christ. We read that this morning in Romans chapter 6. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. I'm in union with Jesus. I'm not in union with the law. I'm in union with Jesus Christ. By faith in the Son of God. No mention of the law. No mention of the law. Who loved me and gave himself for me. I now live in a relationship with Jesus Christ, not with the law. I died with Christ. I rose with Christ. I live for Christ. All of the law's demands satisfied in Christ. No longer a sinner trying to earn acceptance with God through the law but a beloved child of God with Christ living in me. Verse 21. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Tim Keller, in his book, Galatians for You, provides this wonderful illustration. I'm not going to paraphrase it. I'm just going to read it. Imagine that your house was burning down, but your whole family had escaped. And I said to you, let me show you how much I love you. And ran into the house and died. What a tragic and pointless waste of life you would probably think. But now imagine that your house was on fire and one of your children was still in there. And I said to you, let me show you how much I love you. And ran into the flames and saved your child, but perished myself. You would think, look how much that man loved us. If we could save ourselves, Christ's death is pointless and means nothing. If we realize we cannot save ourselves, Christ's death will mean everything to us. And we will spend the life that he has given us in joy of service for him, bringing our whole lives into line. And I'm going to add the word orthowalking with the gospel. All right, let's, let's go to Gwen Smith's uh, famous so what. I have three quick so what's here of my own. In my life, am I courageous to share my faith with others? And am I courageous to confront those who oppose the gospel? Am I courageous to share my faith with others? Am I courageous to confront those 
who oppose the gospel. Second, are there areas in my life similar to Peter and Barnabas where I am not ortho-walking according to the gospel, making me a hypocrite? Are there areas in my life where I'm not walking in line with the gospel that would label me a hypocrite and needs to be addressed? And then the third point, have I accepted freely and with an open, an open empty hand the righteousness of God's one and only Son by faith in Christ alone, who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our text this morning. May it be an encouragement in our own walk with you. Pray that we would all draw closer to you, that we would all be nearer to you, that we would all worship you, that we would desire to spend time this week with you, in relationship with you, uh, meditating on the love of Christ, remembering how you loved us and gave yourself for us. Help us to uh, harvest that relationship and not all the other distractions. 